me the book of John chapter 6. We'll begin to read in verse number 1. And for a few moments this morning, I want to speak to you on the subject of the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, and we'll begin to read in verse 1. I'll invite you to stand, all those that can and are able in honor and in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And John chapter 6, verse 1 says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seen a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But, he said, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and disciples to those sitting down. And likewise, the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men which had not, and then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is coming to the world. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit would challenge us and speak to us today. God, I pray as we do each week. God, if there's a person sitting in this building uh, who has never truly turned from their sin and trusted Jesus to be Lord of their life, Holy Spirit, I pray you'll convict them of their sin. Their need to do that today. And God, I pray they'll turn and surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ today. Confess Him to be Lord of their life. God, challenge all those that are here, everyone who names the name of Christ. I pray you'll speak through the truths that are in this text. And I pray as we come to a time of invitation, God, your Spirit will invite us. You'll speak to us. You'll challenge us concerning where we stand in need today in our, our walk as we follow you as learners and followers of Jesus Christ. Invite us into your will, and I pray we'll submit to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I invite you to be seated. Well, we saw last week in John chapter 5, Jesus returned um, to Jerusalem. Uh, we saw that, again, we reminded of a message we'd preached back, I think it was in the month of May. We met a man who had been lame for 38 years, who sat by a pool there in Bethesda. His only hope was in a man-made superstition. But Jesus spoke to him. He offered him an invitation uh, to receive a new life. And that man demonstrated real faith. We, we looked at that last week, how Christ changed his life and the evidence that was after that. But then in verses 16 through 47, which we'll most likely look at uh, tonight during our time of Bible study together, Jesus had a very tense encounter 
um, with the Pharisees. And he revealed some very profound truths about himself and his ministry. And so it's, it's after that, that tense conversation, that tense encounter. The Bible says in verse number 1 that after these things, it's after those things that Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And verse 2 says, and a great multitude followed him. So Jesus has a large crowd now. Um, lives are being changed. Things happen when Jesus shows up. There are miracles that are taking place. These are the signs that John spoke of. And so many people are following him because of the signs that he performed on those, the Bible says in verse number 2, who were diseased, that is, sick. But you need to remember they're following him because of the signs, not because they loved him with their hearts, soul, mind, and strength. They were merely infatuated. Friend, I want to remind you, there's a big difference between infatuation and love. And these we're going to see in John chapter 6, verse 66, probably next week. This was a group of people that, again, when Jesus began to lay out what it really looked like to be a disciple and a follower of him. Because I want to remind you again, friend, contemporary culture and what's popular doesn't define what a disciple is. Christ does. And so he did that. And the Bible says in John chapter 6, verse 66, many of his disciples followed him no more. But there's about 5,000 men, and many commentators have said, you know, that this was probably a greater number because of women and children that were together if it was just indeed 5,000 males. Um, but, friend, regardless, 5,000 or older, that's a large crowd to have coming towards you. And that's a big crowd of people that begin to follow him. They have interest in him. And so this is the feeding of the 5,000. If you've ever been around church for the more than about six months, you've probably heard this story at some point. You've seen on the felt board two little fish and five little biscuits, and you've heard the story of how Christ and the power of God multiplied that and met the need. But there's some wonderful truths from this story today, the feeding of the 5,000. I'll bring three things to your attention. Number one this morning, I want you to notice a divine foresight. A divine foresight. You know, in our lives, um, there are times when, when we become surprised by an action or a series of events. It happens to me um, from time to time. I'll hear about something, I'll say, well, man, you know, I didn't see that coming, uh, or I, didn't, you know, I really didn't think that that might happen. There are things that happen in our country all the time in the news, and I thought, you know, I never thought I'd live to see the day um, that, that that would happen. You ever been there before something just kind of snuck up on you that you never really saw? You know, so I, just, I never saw that. Friend, I want you to know, that's never happened to God. There's never been anything that has just occurred to God. There's never anything that's caught God off guard. He is the God of all knowledge. He sees all he knows all. Psalm 147 and verse number 5, uh, the psalmist says this, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Uh, the author of Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4 says, O Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 13 says this, And there is no creature hidden 
from his sight. That's God. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Our God is omniscient. That means he knows all things past, all things present. And friend, listen, this all being encouraged. He knows all things future. There's not a single thing that's in your tomorrow God doesn't already know about. He possesses divine foresight. Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. The Father and I are one. So Jesus possesses divine foresight. And so as he sat there on the mountain with his disciples, he didn't just look up and say, whoa, where did all those people come from? Well, he knew they were coming. He saw the moment. He saw the need. He saw it. He saw the problem coming before he saw the great multitude. Well, what is the problem that's about to happen? Well, look at verse number 5. Jesus lifted his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now listen, you need to understand, Jesus had a plan for it all. And the question he was asking wasn't for himself or to get an answer. He already had a plan. But, but he, has, he, he knew everything that was going to happen. Uh, verse number 3, he had come to a place uh, to sit where all of them could be seated. Look at the Bible says in verse 3. And he went and sat upon the mountain. He, he came to a place uh, where it was, there was a wide expanse where the great multitude that was coming could sit down for the performing of the miracle to meet the need and so that 2,000 years later we can sit and talk about what happened and be blessed from it. He had a plan for all of those things. He had a plan for every need. Verse number 6 says, uh, but, but this he said to test him, for Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. When he saw the 5,000 coming, when he knew about the need, he knew exactly what he was going to do, who was coming, and how he would handle the situation. Man, I can't speak for you this morning, but how encouraging it is to know that as our God leads us along in this life, he does so with divine foresight and omniscient knowledge. You know, these are uncertain days that we are in. We really don't know what the future of our country is going to look like. I mean, we, we understand from uh, the study of eschatology and end times, we know what things will be, but we don't know the minute details. Uh, we don't know what gas is going to go back up to, how the housing market is, interest rates that I know is affected. Uh, some of you who are retired, it's affected your retirement each month. We, we don't know how all of those things are going to happen. But listen to me, friend. But we belong to a God who does. He sees everything. He knows everything. And he has a plan. And he will not forsake his own. So praise be to God for a divine foresight and an omniscient knowledge. Secondly, I want you to notice this morning, a developed faith. A developed faith. Uh, the Bible says in verse number 5 that then Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing the great multitude coming toward him. Then he turned to Philip and said, Now where shall we buy bread that these we may eat? Well, there's wisdom in, in a multitude of counselors. And uh, I don't try to make decisions when it comes to the church ever without talking to the deacon body. And so, you know, now listen, uh, you know, if, if it's time to turn a light on, I don't call for a deacon's meeting and say, Do we need to turn this light off? We just turn it off. But when there are decisions to make regarding ministry um, that we need to pray about, we'll sit and talk about things. We'll, I'll talk to ministry leaders. If there's something to, to do with Awana, I'll talk to Rex. And he and Angel will get together, and then they'll talk with their workers, and then they make a decision. 
Well, friend, listen, Jesus wasn't seeking out advice. It wasn't that he didn't know exactly what to do. Uh, you know, you may be an individual like me that you know to put gas in the place that's got the fuel cap, um, and you know about every 6,000 miles now synthetic, you need to get your oil changed, right? But other than that, you don't know a thing that's under the hood. You know, there could be a cage full of monkeys under there, and like me, you wouldn't know they were even under there. Anybody like that? I'm not too, you know, manly not to admit that. I don't know anything about cars. But when something begins to happen on the car that I don't know, I'll, I'll call someone who does, and I'll try to get some advice. Say, hey, well, this thing's made the most awful racket and sound. What do, you, what do you think that is? Because I have no idea. I have no clue. That, I, I want to emphasize again, that's not what Jesus is doing. This is an opportunity for Philip to be tested, for his faith to be developed. You know, many times in Scripture, God asks questions of man, but it's not for his benefit. It's for the person that God is asking the question to. You know, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 9, uh, sin had entered the world. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had created. Uh, Eve was beguiled. Adam willingly sinned at that moment that they sinned. The Bible says their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. They hid themselves from the presence, again, of an all-seeing, all-knowing God. The Bible says they began to make uh, aprons of fig leaves to hide the shame of their sin. The Bible says that God came walking in the cool of the day. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 9, there's a question. God is walking in the cool of the day. And he called out and he said, Adam, where are you? Well, friend, God knew where Adam was. A lot of times I'll come in the back of the house and I'll say, Hey, Melissa, because I need something. And I don't know whether she's in the den or she's somewhere else. And a lot of times she'll be, Hey, I'm right here. You don't have to, to yell. I'm right, I'm right here. But I didn't know where she was. I'll go in the house and look for the kids. And I'll say, hey, hey, Nick, Nick. And then often he'll have headphones on and I've got to get louder. Any parents know my pain this morning? But I don't know where they're at. And so I'm, I'm saying, hey, where are you? So I can identify exactly where they were. Friend, that's not what's taking place. God knew exactly where Adam was. He knew exactly what had happened. When he asked Adam, where are you? It was so Adam could think about, you know what? Where am I? I'm down here naked, hiding from an all-seeing, all-knowing God, making an apron from fig leaves that's already beginning to wither and fall apart. Adam needed to reflect on what had happened into his life to get him to that point. Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, Cain has murdered his brother Abel. Well, God, God knew that. But the Bible says that God called out to Cain and says, where is your, where's Abel, your brother? Well, God knew where he was. He had been murdered. But Cain needed to think about what had happened in his life that had brought him to the place that he was. One of my most favorite passages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 32, it's when Jacob wrestled with Jesus. It's a Christophany. It's a pre-New Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. He wrestled with him all night long. I mean, boy, and you want to talk about a wrestling hole. Jesus, he just touched the, 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 the hollow of his thigh, and his hip went completely out of the joint. That's better than a spinning toe hold. I mean, he, 
He just touched him, and his leg went out of socket. But the Bible says in Genesis chapter 32 and verse number 27 that Jesus asked him a question. He said to him, what is your name? Well, he knew what his name was. He knew who he was wrestling with. It was Jacob. But Jacob needed to think about what it meant to be Jacob, the supplanter. Or no preacher say he was so crooked when they buried him, they had to screw him into the ground. That's the kind of life that he had lived. And he needed to really think about, well, what is my name? Who am I? So God was asking this question not for God's benefit, but for his benefit. 1 Kings chapter 19 and in verse number 9. Remember the great victory that Elijah had, had on Mount Carmel? And boy... What a spiritual high there was. All the prophets of Jezebel have been slain. But oh boy, something challenging happened. A woman got after him. I've said many times, you can deal with a mean man in church, but a mean woman gets after you, God help you. And so there he is. He's fleeing from his life, from Jezebel, hiding in a cave. He's so depressed. He's all out of sorts. And in 1 Kings 19... And in verse number 9, the Bible says a still small voice began to speak to Elijah and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, God knew what he was doing there. He knew what had happened. He knew what brought him to that place. But Elijah needed to think about, you know what? I serve the God that answered by fire. I serve the God that's greater than all the prophets. What am I doing here? How is it that I've taken my eyes off of God and I've got them on this woman that couldn't draw her next breath unless God allowed it. And so here God is, Jesus, he begins to test Philip. That The questions that are being asked, they're to develop faith. It's not for the benefit of God or Jesus that's asking. It's for the benefit of the one who's being asked. And so in John chapter 6 and verse number 6, the Bible says that Jesus did this to test him. He's, he's testing him. Now, now he's, he's, he's checking to see what it was, what Philip would say. But now don't you listen to me. God doesn't test us so that he knows how we will respond. God tests us so that we will know how we will respond. Did you hear that this morning? When God tests us, it's not so God says, now I want to see what he's going to do. God already knew what you were going to do. He already knew what I was going to do. The benefit of the test is not for God to see. Any of you ever bought a car before? Sure, that's how you got here this morning. You didn't just climb in it. You went and gave it what kind of drive before you signed on the dotted line? A test drive. You wanted to see exactly what, because you didn't know what kind of vehicle it was. Friend, God doesn't test us. I want to see just what kind of disciple that Chad is. He knows who I am, and he knows who you are. The purpose of of testing is so that we will know ourselves. Things that we couldn't know about us unless God tested us. And so he asked him these things so Philip would know exactly who he was. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Friend, your heart determines. Not only the mouth speaks, but the hands act and the feet walk and the body does. I'm not adding to the text, but it's out of the heart that all of these things answer. When you get squeezed, what's inside you, friend, is what's going to come up. You know, you can, you can put on your Sunday smile and Sunday best, and you can come to church and sit and sing and smile. But friend, I'm telling you, the real you is the you that is when you're under pressure. That's the real you. 
Not who you have time to prepare for and get your face right. But the real you is who you are under pressure. And they're under pressure. Listen, 5,000 people have come to dinner. I mean, we have a panic attack when just four or five show up. The house isn't clean. What are we going to fix them? They've got 5,000 that have come to dinner. And Jesus says, what are we going to feed all these people? What do you mean we? What do you mean us? How's this our problem? And so Philip, he, he, he's under pressure now. And so Philip answered and said, well, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. And so the purpose of tests are never for God to see what we will do or how we will respond, but for us to see how we will so that we will learn and so that we will grow. Not just to know, friend, listen to me, but so that we can be changed by what we learned. Uh, James chapter 1 that we've missed. And again, if you're not in a Sunday morning Bible study group, you're, you're missing a great, a great study in the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, literally testings, knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The hardship, the test that you're going through, it's so that you can learn about you, you can learn more about him, and that through that, friend, he can chip away all those things that don't look like him and can look more, that don't look like him and that you can look more like Jesus Christ. That's, that's Romans 8, 28. That's the good that comes from hardship. You've gone through a trial and a hardship before you say, well, I don't, I don't know how any good's going to come out of this. You ever been there before? I have God, I believe, but help my unbelief. How is it that you're going to work good out of this? Friend, the good that always comes out of hardship is Romans 8.29. 8.28 trusting that they'll be good, but the good's always Romans 8.29, that we'll be further conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Less of me and more of Jesus. And so that's, that's, a, that's a tested faith, a developed faith. Third, I want you to notice now, a distributed feast. A distributed feast. The Bible says, so, so Philip begins to say, you know, hey, look, 200 denarii worth of bread, that's, that was historically, now again, remember, there's three, three parts to every scripture. Original message to the original audience, time transcending truth, and then the application from that truth. Well, you know, 200 denarii doesn't mean much to us, but it did to someone in that day. You know, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. That was a year's worth of wages for just a common worker person, a blue-collar worker. That's, that's on average, historians say, what they would have earned. He says, a year's worth of wages isn't sufficient enough for them that every one of them may have just a little. And then so Andrew, uh, Peter's brother, he shows up. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, verse 9, Hey, there's a lad here, a little fella, who has five barley loaves and two fish. Well, so good, so far, so good. He's like, man, Andrew's got some faith. But then from, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, but what are they among so many? So that was the want, want, want. That was everything sounded great for a second. But then the air got completely let out. And so he didn't. He didn't have faith. How great it would have been and what a pivotal moment in the story would have been if he would have said, hey, Lord, here's a little fella. 
His mom loved him enough that she made him a little, a little lunch, five little barley loaves. And friend, now listen, these were, these were like little biscuits. Five little barley loaves and, and, and two fish. Now God, Jesus, do what you do. We're just going to sit back and watch. But he didn't, he didn't have that kind of faith yet. He didn't have that kind of faith. And so Jesus begins to, to, to do what he does, even without their faith. Jesus said to them, look at verse number 10, make the people to sit down. Mark chapter 6, verses 39 through 40 in the parallel passage, um, the Bible says um, that uh, he, he commanded them to, to all sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And verse number 33 says that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of the saints. And so what was going to take place, friend, was not going to be this widespread pandemonium. It wasn't going to be like a feeding frenzy of sharks on a bleeding fish. It was going to be done in order and it was going to be in an orderly fashion. I'm glad that's the way our Lord works. Friend, listen, there needs to be balance in ministry. You don't need to plan the Holy Spirit out of ministry, but at the same time, friend, God doesn't bless laziness, and it's never wrong to have an orderly plan that you give to God, and you allow Him to be able to conduct and guide and add to and take away. And so I've seen it both ways in churches. I've seen the bulletin so locked in that if you even move, the person that wrote it will just fall down on the floor and have a mental breakdown, literally. I've seen it just absolutely fall completely apart if you change the plan. And then I've seen it on the completely opposite side that, you know, somebody walks in, blows the cigarette smoke out of their mouth and flops a red book down and says, what are we going to sing today? And then the guy will flop his Bible open and just point down to a verse and go to preaching. Friendless, there needs to be balance. There needs to be balance. And so what God is going to do here, he does in an orderly fashion. This, this is the process of the miracle. Notice these three things. First off, I want you to notice the release of the lunch. The release of the lunch. The Bible says in verse number 9, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Well, the Bible says uh, in, in verse uh, number 11 that Jesus took the loaves and he took the fish. Well, how did he get the loaves and how did he get the fish? He didn't snatch them. He, you know, he didn't push the little boy down and grab them. He didn't throw rocks at him and knock him out and take it and run with it. He received it. He received it. There, it was a free will offering that was made. That's, that's the release of the lunch. I want you to notice, the little boy held nothing back. He didn't say, well, now look, let me keep one barley loaf and one fish, and you take one fish and four barley loaves, and that way I'll know I'm going to get something, you know, and then you, you take the rest and do what else you're going to do. That's not what the Bible teaches here. The Bible says that he, he gave every single bit that he had to use, uh, that he had to, to Jesus to use. He held absolutely nothing back. My friend, I want you to understand, you'll never be used by God if you're holding out on parts of your life. You're never going to do it. And that's one, again, the challenges of ministry uh, in, in the day in which we're living. And I'm just telling you one of the great burdens in my life as a pastor is, is to see people 
who hold back on parts of their life. I tried to illustrate it for you several months ago this way. It is as if there are parts of your life that God doesn't have the key to. There, there are rooms in the house of your life that you've given God, like, God, when I, I want to be saved, and I don't want to go to hell, and so here, here, here are the keys to, to my house. And it's if, you know, God begins to do inventory on the house of your life, and he comes to a couple of rooms and says, you know, what, what, are, what are in these rooms? This key doesn't work. Well, that's because I've got the key around my neck. These, these are my rooms, and these, these rooms belong to me, and these parts of my life belong to me. Friend, listen to me this morning. That's not surrender. If Christ is Lord of your life, then he must be Lord of all. Or he's Lord of nothing. It's not a popular message in the day in which we're living. It is not. But my friend, I'm telling you, lordship demands that Christ is Lord over all your schedule, over all your finances, over all your possessions, over everything. If he's truly Lord, he must be Lord. He must be Lord. Listen, he defines that. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 37. The Bible says that, now listen, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, listen, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's as if someone asked the question, what does real surrender look like, Jesus? You, you keep talking about a surrendered life. What exactly does it, give, give us an illustration you know, of what real surrender is. And Christ just begins to share with them, well, I'll, tell, I'll show you from my life. Philippians 2 says that, that he didn't consider the glory that he had in heaven to be a treasure clutch. He set all of that aside and humbled himself to come to this sin-cursed earth. Why? To die in agony and shame. And so he begins to share from his own life. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and killed, and after three days rise again. Remember in the garden when Jesus prayed? And in agony was sweating great drops of blood from the stress that was on him? It wasn't the cross. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the scourging. What was the agony of the garden? It's he who knew no sin was made sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That was the agony of the cross. And he said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to experience sin. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Friend, listen, that's an illustration of surrender. That's an illustration of being all in. He held absolutely no part of his life back. Now listen, verse 32, listen to me. He spoke this word openly. Well, Peter, the same Peter in John chapter 6, verse 68, after the crowd has left, this is the same Peter who said, Lord, to, to who, where shall we go? Only you have the words of life. This is the same Peter that said, look, we're going to follow you. We believe you. Peter begins to rebuke him for this kind of talk. He says, what are you talking about you're going to die? What are, you ta- what are you talking about you're going to be rejected? What are you talking about you're going to be hated? In verse 33, the Bible says, then when Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. Listen, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What's he saying? This, this idea of commitment you're talking about, 
this is the idea of commitment with men. I'll be committed as long as it's convenient, but when it's not convenient for the things I want to accomplish and I want to do, then I'm not going to be committed anymore. Did you get that this morning? He said, Peter, you're looking at it that way. He said, you're not mindful of the things of God. Listen to verse 34. But when he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, that is to have a personal saving relationship with me, to be an all-in disciple. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, that is to have some parts that still belong to him. Y'all know what, you guys know what this is? It's my, it's my pet sin. It's mine. Nobody knows about it. And this is just a little part of my life that I hold on to. I love God and I love Jesus and I want to go to heaven, but this is my little sin. I'm not letting go of this part of my life. Friend, listen, you can't serve Jesus and have a pet sin. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, that is, lays every part of their life, listen to me, brings all the keys to every room and says, here, you take them, your Lord. Whoever desires to lose their life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. Listen to verse 36, so powerful. For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world, but he loses his own soul? What will it profit? So this little boyfriend, listen, the reason that this miracle could take place, the reason that 5,000 could be fed was because the little boy held nothing back. He gave everything to Jesus. And my friend, I'm telling you, you're never going to see the power of God demonstrated in your life the way God wants to if there's parts of your life that you're holding on to and you're holding back. You must give everything. So we see the release of the lunch. Also notice now the reception of the lunch. Well, in everybody else's eyes, you know, what verse number nine, well, I mean, we've got the, the, the five loaves and the two fishes, but what are these among so many? Can you, can you see the look on everybody's face? The 12 when they saw it, the other 11? What? Andrew, what are you even talking? What would you even bring that? Quit wasting Jesus' time. What's he going to do with five loaves and two fish? I mean, there's 5,000 people over here. What's he going to do with that? Because they were looking through the eyes of flesh and not the eyes of faith. Not the eyes of faith. Jesus didn't have that response. He didn't belittle the size. He took it and he used it. Friend, listen, I want you to listen. I'm not talking about the physical when I say this. God won't use big people. He only uses little people. If you're big in your eyes, God's never going to use you. But if you're little in your own eyes, you're the person God can use. I'll give you an example. Judges chapter 6 and verse number 12. Remember, it was a, it was a day... That was exactly like the day we're living in today and really resembles the church. Judges chapter 1, 21, verse 25 says, Everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. No matter what the Word of God says, whatever anybody wants to do, E-M-F-H, every man for himself. Whatever you want to do, just do it. That's the way the nation of Israel looked at this day. But there were still some godly people serving the Lord. What Gideon was hiding scared absolutely to death of the Midianites. Remember, he was threshing wheat, 
And God had to plan. God didn't go and find the biggest, burliest, strongest, bloodthirsty person. He went and found an individual that was hiding under a wine press, threshing wheat. And listen to what the Lord said to Gideon when he went and found him. Verse number 12, the angel of the Lord. Now listen, that's Jesus. That's a pre-New Testament appearance of Christ. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. Now listen, you mighty man of valor. He wasn't a mighty man of valor. He was a coward. But listen, God saw not who he was, but who he could be with Christ living in him and through him. In him and through him. And so when Jesus saw these five little loaves and two fish, friend, he didn't see little. He saw something that he could take and do something mighty through. I'm telling you, friend, you'll never be used by God if you've got some complex that you're really something and you, you believe all the media hype that either you've created about yourself or everybody else says about you. The person that God uses is the person that's little in their own eyes. Saul, listen, it wasn't God's plan for Saul to be king. He wanted to, but he gave man the worst thing that they can get, and that's what they wanted. And so he gave him a king. And, so, and God was leading. Samuel was there to help him. But remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15, in verse number 17, he, he had failed prior to that to kill King Agag. He held back. He did not follow the command of the Lord. He thought he knew better than God. He began to believe that he really was head and shoulders above everybody else. And he was really something. And you remember what Samuel said to him when the, when the kingdom was stripped away? He said, when thou wast little in thine own eyes. When thou wast little in thine own eyes, did thou not have strength? And did God not do something through you? Friend, listen, the lunch looked like nothing to everybody else, but Jesus received it. It was released, and he received it. He didn't say, well, I can't do anything with that. You may be here this morning, you know, and you've, you've, just, you've always struggled, you know, with, with just your identity, you know, you, you've always felt you were less. You may have come from a dysfunctional background where you were just, you were, you were abused emotionally. People just talked down to you. Friend, I want you to listen to me this morning. You listen, if, you, if you're still awake, say amen. You're somebody in Jesus Christ. You're somebody in Jesus Christ. And he's, he has a plan for you to serve within the life of the church. He has spiritual gifts. Once you get saved, he has given you. He will equip you outside of this church to live on mission wherever it is that you work and wherever it is you go throughout the day. That is your mission field. That's your sphere of influence. I'm telling you, God will work through you and speak through you to share His Word and to change people's lives if you'll just release your life to Him. And stay little. And stay, stay little. Give your life to Jesus, friend, and just watch what He does. Just watch what he does. So we see the release, we see the reception. I want you to notice the remaking, the remaking of the lunch. The Bible says in verse number 11 that Jesus, he took it. He took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and disciples to those sitting down, and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. He took it, he blessed it, he distributed, and the Bible says they were able to eat as much as they they wanted. Jesus touched it, and friend, listen, he just remade it, and it fed 5,000. He did something for the people that they couldn't do 
for themselves. And the Bible says in verse number 12, it's amazing to me because I've never seen it when church people get together. They were actually filled. I mean, they were, actually, they were actually, they quit going to the tables. They weren't eating anymore. They were absolutely filled. And so he said to his disciples, go gather up the fragments that remain. There were 12 baskets. Listen to me. The little boy didn't lose anything. He took home more than he brought. So many times, friend, I've had conversations with people that say, well, you know, if we don't do this, or if I don't do this, or if we're, if we're not involved in this, or if I, if I keep this right, we're just, we're going to be missing out. Friend, listen, you, you can't outgive God. If that little boy would have held back on that, he wouldn't have been able to be a part of the miracle. He was filled. He went home absolutely filled. And friend, listen, Jesus cooked better than his mama did. He would have missed out on Jesus serving lunch. Friend, I'm telling you, when you hold out on what, whatever the excuse is that the devil gives you of why you can't be obedient to the call of God on your life as a disciple, you're the one that always loses. Because I want to tell you something. If that little boy hadn't given his lunch, Jesus would have found the lunch from somebody else. He would have met the need. We're, you know, we, we get this complex, you know, well, I'll just leave the church. Well, friend, listen, the church isn't, God's not dependent upon me, and he's not dependent upon you. There's another, there was somebody, there was another lunch there, friend, somewhere that God would have used. The little boy would have missed the blessing. So the little boy lost nothing. So often people compromise commitment, and listen, they condescend to the world's standards, and the world's plans because of fear of loss. Well, we're going to miss out. I'm going to miss out if I don't do this or live this way. Friend, listen, you're never going to miss out in God's will. You're always going to have more and better. John 10, 10, thief comes but to steal, kill, destroy. I've come that might have life and life more. What? Abundantly. It's always more. It's always more abundantly. Truth, friend, listen, when people do that, they're robbing themselves of seeing God do something through their surrender. Through their surrender. Can't you imagine the joy that little boy had when he went home that day and his mama said, well, what'd you do today? Well, there's a big old crowd gathered up on the mountain. Okay, well, how was your lunch? It was great. It was great. And just to be, began to be able to tell that all God did through that, through that faithfulness. I want to ask you some questions from these truths this morning. I want you to listen to me. And listen, this is traditionally in the Baptist church where Bibles, you start hearing that thump, purses rattling. Just listen to these questions this morning. Would you do that? Just listen. I want to ask you, have you ever brought your life to Jesus Christ? I mean, has there ever been a moment where the Spirit of God convicted you of your sin and you brought your life to Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever talked to somebody before and you've been inviting them to come to Jesus Christ so that they can experience life that only He will give? But they begin to talk to you about all the excuses, all their past. There's no way that God can save them. You've, you've done that before, right? We hear it all the time. Well, friend, I will share with you again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. 
Jesus took those five loaves and those two fish, and listen, and he remade it into a feast that no man could do. Friend, I'm telling you, if you'll bring your life to Jesus Christ in humble repentance and in faith trust him to be Lord of, Lord of your life, I want you to listen to me on the authority of God's word. He will remake you into a new man and a new woman. I don't care what the past has been. And people try to bring up what you did. Well, I know what they did years ago, and I remember who they were. Friend, listen, when you come to Christ, He buries who you used to be in the seas of His forgetfulness. He chooses to remember it no more, and you're a new creation because of His grace. But you've got to choose to come. You've got to choose to respond and give your life wholly to Him. I ask, ask our church today, are you still surrendered? So I've, I've brought my life to Jesus. Well, does he still have all of it? Does he still have all of it? Does he still have the key to every room, every part? Or for whatever the excuse, have you, have you taken parts back? They don't belong to him anymore. Don't do that, friend. Stop today and, say, and, and, and just experience repentance and revival and renewal. And give Jesus back all your life the way you did the day you got saved. You remember, remember the joy, friend? Listen, is there any joy you've ever experienced like the day that you got saved and you knew that you were saved? Isn't that something? You remember that? Some of you, I'm not sure about your faces, if you remember that. Do you remember that? Friend, there's no joy that only compares to that except when you experience his reviving touch. You've been, you've been away, you've, you've backslid, you've been drifting. He doesn't have all of you anymore. And friend, listen, when you come home like the prodigal son, listen, God kills the fatted calf and there is joy, Psalm 51, of his salvation back in your heart again. There's nothing like it. Don't leave here today without that, without that joy. I know some of you this morning, God's testing you. I know things that are going on in your life physically, things in relationships. Some of you I don't even know, but if, you're, if you have breath in your lungs... You're, you're, you're either in one of three places, all right? You're fixing to go into a test, you're in the middle of a test, or you're just coming out of one. But you're always going to be in one of those three places as a disciple. There's always some kind of challenge in our life that God uses to test us. And I ask you this morning, are you trusting God today to work out His will in your problem? I just want to encourage you, be, be encouraged today. God has divine foresight. And I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm so glad to report to you, listen, God does. And Jesus does. He sees into tomorrow. He has a plan. And if you'll continue, my friend, to leave your life at his feet, he'll work out a miracle even greater than this personally for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Have you ever brought your life to Christ? I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Would you be honest? If you died today, are you 100% certain that you'd spend eternity in heaven? The Bible says in 1 John 5, 13 that you can know that you've been saved. You can know. Has there ever truly been a moment where you repented and you laid your life at the feet of Jesus Christ, trusting Him to be Lord, believing He died, believing He rose again? and giving him all the keys in your life. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved.
Has there ever a moment that you've done that? If you haven't, won't you do it now? I invite you just to, in a simple, humble prayer, I'll lead you in it, but listen, it has to be your words. It has to be the desire of your heart. Tell him so right now where you sit silently. God, forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he rose again. And I trust Jesus to be Lord of my life. You said that if I would call on you, you would save me. I'm doing that. I trust you to do it right now. Now take me, God, and make me into the person you want me to be. I yield my life to you. I thank you for saving me. Now help me to be bold and help me to be obedient and to follow you all the days of my life. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. No one's looking around. If you prayed that prayer in just a moment when they begin to sing and we stand to our feet, I'm going to invite you to make your way down to the front where I'm standing so I can encourage you in that decision you've made to follow Christ today. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I know many of you in here today, if not all of you, are facing some kind of challenge and hardship, some, some burden on your life that Satan is trying to use as a temptation to cause you to lose faith. But my friend, listen, God is using as a test to bring out the best in you, not the worst. Continue to give it to the Lord. Continue to trust Him and to believe that He has a plan and that He has a will. But my friend, listen, if all of you is not on the altar, if there's any part of your life you've taken back over, God's not going to work in your life. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God says, I will not hear you. Isaiah 59 2 says, Sin separates us from God. If there's any part of your life that doesn't belong to God, you're not going to be able to experience His power and direction. Experience His reviving touch this morning. Just like the day you got saved, friend. Resubmit your life to His Lordship today. Maybe the, the need in your life is to pray just like this. Oh God, I remember the day you saved me. The joy I had in my heart. But God, I've taken back over these parts of my life. This part of my time schedule. This part of my finances. This part of my family. God, I've, I've taken back over this. No more. I lay my life at your feet. God, work in me, use me. All that I am and all that I have is yours. Your will be done in my life. God, I trust you with the hardship I'm going through now. You work it out, God, for my good and your glory. And I pray through it, I'll be further conformed into your image. God, you speak to your church. Challenge us today. God, you may be leading someone. This is the church family they're to link their life with. I pray they'll be obedient to your call today. Someone's been saved, but they've never followed you in believer's baptism. God, I, I pray you'll help them to see. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to them it is sin. It's, it's a command to be baptized. I pray for the believer. You'll help them to be bold and to get that accomplished so that they can be in line with your word and your will for their life. Speak to your church now. I pray each of us will experience your best as we submit our life to you, just like a little boy did a lunch. I pray right now, God, we'll freshen anew. We'll give all of our life to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let's reverently stand to our feet. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed.